Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. Have you heard of Pauli Coffee, Santa Maria, Ricenta, Golden Green? What about Poco Loco? These brands are all owned by the Finnish food and beverage company Paulig, which has a presence in 13 European countries, a turnover of almost 1 billion euro, and around 2,000 employees. My guest today is Marika King, who is the head of Pink, Paulig's venture arm for investing in early stage startups in and around the future of food. Pink stands for Paulig Incubator and was launched in 2018. The objective of Pink is to help Paulig renew itself and prosper, as well as contribute to a tastier, healthier, and more sustainable planet. In today's episode, we talk about how their corporate venture arm works, the kind of investments they are looking for, and how they bring value beyond capital in terms of resources, knowledge, and channels that come with being a large food and beverage company. And I wanted to share one last thing before we get started. In the two years I've been producing this show, my favorite thing is hearing from you, the listener, on how an episode has helped you open a door, resonated or not. So this month, I am running a little competition. If you go to www.nordicfoodtech.io competition, you will find a form with a few questions to give me feedback and review the show. At the end of the month, I will pick a lucky winner, and then you will have a choice of your prize, either a $200 gift certificate to the restaurant, bar, or coffee shop of your choice, or an hour of coaching and consulting with me. Sound good? Then go to nordicfoodtech.io competition and give me some feedback to put your name in the hat. So hello, Marika, and welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So let's start with a little bit of a backstory of what is Paulique and what's their core business. So the big picture first. Yeah, um, Paulique is a Finnish family-owned company. Uh, it's a house of brands. It has coffee. Uh, I don't know if you know that Finns are the heaviest coffee drinkers in the world. So they're actually one of the biggest coffee producers in the world. So there's a Paulig brand of coffee in the Finland and Russia and the Baltics. And then there's Santa Maria, which is spices and Tex-Mex. Uh, and that's a pretty much European brand. And then we have a Santa up here in the north, which is more colonial goods. And we also have Golden Green, which is uh, the oat-based protein, which is probably the more the more fun one from a pink perspective, given that it's sort of very future oriented. And then we have Poco Loco, which is also a, it's like a private label uh, Tex-Mex brand. Mm-hmm. So there we go. And that's, uh, that's Paulig's uh, core business. Yeah. And you work for Pink. So what is Pink and what is your role? Yeah. So Pink is the venture arm uh, of Paulig. Um, Paulig's been around for 140 years and they want to be around for 140 years more. And I think as a lot of people working in the food industry are aware of sort of renewing yourself is somewhat of a challenge. 
Um, so Pauli is one, uh, Pink is one initiative for Pauli to kind of renew itself and prosper and realize that, you know, if you want to be part of the future of food, you might have to sort of go a little bit bolder and a bit more radical in terms of pursuing innovations. So we are a venture arm and we invest in early stage uh, startups in food and sort of services around food. So we say sort of within the future of food, food and food tech, um, that's sort of where we operate. Mm. And what have you found so far? How long have you guys been around? What have you noticed? What's it been like starting this? Yeah, you know, <laughs> to be fair, to be fairly honest, like I met when I took this job, I was interviewing for it. When I talked to other people, they said, oh, my God, corporate venture capital, that's a nightmare. <laughs> and I think the reason for that is, you know, it's sort of a bit of a contradiction in terms to have a corporate and a venture arm that's almost like a startup. So it's kind of already there. You get clashing cultures and you really need the right setup for this kind of uh, corporate venture initiative to work. And a lot of corporates uh, try and get it wrong and and some uh, then change and get it right. uh, And some kind of just die. You know, I was talking to an investor the other day and he was telling he was actually negotiating to overtake a corporate venture capital units, all of their investments (laughs) because it didn't work. So there is a lot of challenge sort of getting this collaboration between the startup world and the corporate world to function and that's where we are and we also had some challenges to be honest to get the right setup in terms of a mandate and the right uh, governance uh, model uh, so we, we had to work quite a bit on that for the first year and a half and um, and so we but we just finally got it right uh, so now we have something that is is working i would say since summer and so now we can sort of actually start moving and we've sort of done two investments uh, now and probably a third within quite short time so that's very good news and what does that balance look like? So there, like you said, there can be lots of different combinations of how corporates and startups work together. How do you guys do that? What have you found now? Well, I mean, we pretty much function as any VC in a way, like any in early investor, sort of a the venture capital kind of setup, except we try to find ways to cooperate uh, with the core fairly early. So Sometimes, you know, as a way of testing uh, whether the startup is a good thing or not, we kind of engage with the, our core people, you know, and it can be testing a product in a panel or it can be sort of uh, engaging the sustainability department's take on a, say, like a CO2 climate footprint model that they could potentially use uh, or things like that. So, um, uh, but otherwise, I would say we're just kind of um, like any other early stage investor in the kind of sense that, uh, you know, we kind of operate fairly similarly, even though we try to look for some things that are a little bit different in the kind of sense that we want, if possible, to have some kind of link strategically to Pauling, you know, um, in terms of what we're looking for. Do you want me to talk about that? (laughs) Absolutely. I was just about to say, what's the investment thesis between uh, what you're looking for of looking for this thing that's radical, looking for what meets the strategic core business? What's the investment thesis? Yeah, so what we're trying to do is to sort of, we have this triangle, you know, we're sort of trying to find uh, startups that have societal impact and a um, sort of a public impact or strategic impact and a financial impact. Uh, And societal impact is basically health and sustainability impact. Uh, Strategic impact is, 
know, it can either be like a future core business or it can be uh, something that supports the core business. Uh, and sometimes that can be very tangible, such as, like I said, the CO2 climate footprint, you know, model is very important. Sustainability is a big deal for Paulig. It's like a major strategic impact sort of initiative uh, where it wants to be the sort of a sustainability leader and so forth. Uh, but it can also be like, you know, in being part of a future trend in terms of learning, that's a more vague strategic impact, but, but those are sort of the three buckets of strategic impact. And then, of course, financial impact, you know, I mean, if we don't uh, create value, then, you know, we're not going to have a job anymore. It's just the way it works. And that's normal with, uh, with any business, really. So that's kind of what we're aiming for. And, but what does that mean is that, you know, we try to look for radical innovations in taste, health, sustainability, and availability, meaning new ways to reach the consumers. Uh, so it can be a fairly broad, I mean, our, our world, our solution space is fairly broad, uh, I would say. Um, but we don't do, for example, ag tech, which might be good to know, because we figured, you know, we got to draw the line somewhere, and the strategic link there is somewhat vague, and there are better investors for that then. Um, so right now we're currently particularly interested in uh, plant-based space still because there's lots of stuff happening there still. So the new generation plant-based, uh, alternative protein, uh, waste and upcycling, uh, transparency models, which is giving the consumers the right information about health and sustainability to make the right choices. And also uh, personalized nutrition, of course, the holy grail of uh, food tech uh, investing that <laughs> is not quite there yet, but is coming. So a little bit grounded in that of the the mega trends you're noticing, and then as well, this idea of what would the ideal portfolio of pink look like in 10 years? If you got your companies that you were just dying to invest in that matches all these points. It's funny, you know, because the three investments, I can't really, I can talk about one actually, because the other two aren't so official, but they're all uh, biotech and quite deep tech, you know, and I was like, oh my holy schmoly, like I'm not a, an engineer. <laughs> like, I mean, luckily we have one on the team who is an engineer, but you know, I, I kind of like, you know, when you think about Pauli being a house of brands and sort of food and food tech, and we're going to be the corporate venture arm, you kind of thought, oh, you know, there's going to be a lot of food brands, but, and we want to invest in food brands, but it's actually really hard to find food brands that are sort of have some kind of a good degree of innovation and but it's still commercial enough if you know what I mean that's not sort of a super niche super expensive you know these really there's so many of these kind of wonderful authentic handicrafty kind of food people that do wonderful things but it's quite hard to sort of scale them and in a profitable way uh, so you know food 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 as we call it you know real food as opposed to software solutions or something food food is quite difficult um, and the, the 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 silly thing is that the more you know about it you know we're a food company it's actually more difficult because you know more about it so you get a little bit more risk uh, averse in a way which is we have to combat with ourselves with food so but anyway, so I mean, given that we have a taste for radical innovation, of course, there's going to be a lot of these kind of quite advanced biotech companies, and, and that's all good. But I would really also like us to invest in sort of a little bit closer to consumers. So and that can be, you know, like I said, food brands with a sort of new and exciting ingredients uh, or these kinds of uh, 
transparency solutions that I talked about, uh, or uh, you know, personalized nutrition solutions that sort of really work, help the consumers uh, to sort of uh, know what to eat. Uh, so like some kind of mixture of all that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense. When you <laughs> when you say the more you know about food, the more risk averse you can become. It's like a blessing <laughs> and a curse to get more and more expertise. So what what is that? Well, what it is is that you know when we talk to a food food company, uh, there has to be a uh, gross margin that is basically it's basically unit economics. You know, what is the price and what is the sort of the cogs, the cost of goods sold, and what is the the gross margin that we actually then have to do the other stuff from? And the other stuff is the stuff like marketing and sales and you know those things. So it's it has to be an interesting enough unit economics to start with. Uh, because otherwise building in brands is expensive. But there are sort of also creative and innovative ways of doing it these days that, you know, uh, people are also inventing within, uh, like using, you know, influencers and stuff to sort of both create new food, uh, sort of getting input from them, but also selling it sort of directly to consumers. There's definitely, I've noticed, or we've noticed here, there's an increase also maybe with Corona in how, People sell more directly, uh, be you know, to consumers online in all kinds of uh, foods and other stuff. You know, it's yeah. sort of it's definitely increasing. So, a little bit to this point, how do you guys do due diligence on your companies? So, when you select one that you're interested in and want to learn more about, what happens from there? Yeah, so we spend quite a bit of time uh, into um, sort of commercial due diligence before we sign a term sheet and uh, and I, I realized you know I'm not sort of from this industry like so I wasn't quite sure how how it actually works but I realized that some investors they they, they kind of throw out terms just a little bit left right and center maybe exaggerating a bit but and then it, they don't mean so much and we're not so interested in that uh, because I think it's wasting people's time and uh, stuff like that so we try to be pretty sure that, you know, if we take something to our investment committee, that's something we really believe in and something we want to do. Um, having said that, it's really good to sort of have a, you need to have an idea about what kind of valuation we're talking about, because also there's no point in us doing a really a sort of quite detailed, this kind of commercial DD if, if the valuation is completely off. So you, we need to very early have, sort of understand whether we are in the ballpark. Uh, because otherwise we're both wasting time. Do you know what I mean? So you and it's also it's and some entrepreneurs are so reluctant to talk about valuation early because they think it's kind of something that's going to be negotiated and it kind of is. But on the other hand, it kind of isn't because it's if it's early stage, you know, there's a certain amount of ownership you need to go in early. Otherwise, it's not worth it. And and so my advice to entrepreneurs is to not be afraid to sort of talk about valuation early and to make sure you're in the ballpark because then everything will be much faster. How do you figure that out? And what is the ballpark? I know it can be different for every company, but um, in terms of figuring out the valuation. Yeah, it's usually, you know, if it's pre-seed, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's it's sort of a, it can be anything between, you know, I don't know, and one and a half up to two, two million two and a half potentially, but if it's seed, you know, it's kind of like from two, two and a half, so I'm talking million euros, to sort of three, three and a half, potentially four, you know, 
it, it sort of has to do with you know how much money then you you need to put in about the ticket sizes of the round and what percentage you get typically you know it needs to be sort of 15 to 20 plus percent of post you know the post money valuation thing I've learned all this in the last. <laughs> Isn't I know. It great? <laughs> I know, and I, I want to professional to say that. <laughs> I want to dig a little bit uh, deeper into the sense of, if somebody comes to you, they should have their valuation in line. But what else should they have prepared or ready to really engage in a great dialogue? Yeah, um, it's always good, you know, the, if they have a great pitch deck. Um, and the pitch deck needs to under, it needs to explain what problem they're trying to solve uh, because that's sort of the number one. Um, and then they need to understand what is the also explain what the, what is the value proposition relative to alternatives because I find that a lot of entrepreneurs underestimate uh, their competition because they're not thinking broad enough of the alternatives. Uh, they're just thinking this very close is competitive. But, you know, if the consumer or the customer don't buy your solution, what do they do? You know, it, it, they might not sort of be buying a similar thing. They might do something completely different. Uh, you know, like in this Blue Ocean book uh, that a lot of people have read, it's, I think they take the example of, you know, it's not just you're not only competing with short haul planes. You're not only competing with short haul planes. You're competing with, you know, uh, cars or you know trains. This is you just have to think a bit broader. You know, what are the alternatives and why are your solution? Why is it better? So the USP, basically. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, we also always have to understand, obviously, sort of how far they've come in terms of that whatever technology is involved, because there's usually some kind of technology involved. So what's the sort of readiness level? And then obviously the customer kind of validation, customer proof uh, is also another readiness level. And the more you can have from customer validation, obviously the better. So the pitch deck, obviously that involves the team and the consortium or sort of, you know, advisors and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, and then, uh, we like numbers, <laughs> so financials, uh, prognosis, um, and yeah, these can be of extremely different different quality. Uh, and obviously, the better quality, the easier it is to actually in, understand it quicker. And by better quality, we mean where you know stuff where, where assumptions are clearly. You know, you put them out in different lines or at least in formulas. You don't hard code numbers that, so you can't actually understand what the hell the assumptions come from. Um, that's like number one. Uh, and then, of course, the sort of what we oftentimes lack is some kind of bottom up build up that actually gets the, to the overall number. So let's say you say you have revenues of uh, 100 million, uh, like 10 million euros in three years or something like that. Okay. but you know, how many, you need to sort of understand, okay, so the price times the number of whatever you're selling, but then how do you build that up? Is that like one market, two markets, three markets? How many customers is that? You know, you have to be able to assume something uh, to sort of make sure that it's realistic. And then at the end of the day, you know, how many customers are there available? Uh, it's sort of the same thinking as a market share, you know, you also have to sort of do those kinds of comparisons. Is this a realistic market share out of what? Um, 
so building up the business case in a realistic way is, is sort of is uh, is a big help obviously um and you guys yeah. do you invest primarily in nordic companies well uh, yes that's our primary focus uh, but we're open to uh, european um opportunities in areas obviously where maybe we're not so strong in the nordics so we're just about to invest in a sort of a cell-based meat uh, company which is not uh, nordic uh, we don't have a lot of those up here and uh, it's a great opportunity so and that's uh, yeah in europe so a little bit opportunity i ask because related to what a startup should have in line in terms of knowing their own business knowing those business assumptions knowing where they're headed what has been mm. the response you've gotten from entrepreneurs you've engaged with in the Nordics when you ask for those things? Do they have it? Yeah, I mean, it varies. Uh, and the quality definitely varies. Um, but I, they are extremely, you know, I, it's quite often that I get the comments like, oh, my God, you guys really look at our stuff. That, that they're not so used to that <laughs> or something. I don't know. But it's like because quite often we look at the numbers and we actually you know, make these kinds of, if they haven't done these assumptions on the bottom up calculations, we kind of do them quickly and see, okay, what, what do we have to believe for these numbers to be true? And then we engage in a dialogue. Okay. So this means you need to, you need to have a, you know, 5,000 customers in three years. Is that realistic? Where are those customers? You know, and, the, and they, they really love those kinds of discussions. Sometimes, you know, we even find errors in Excel because, you know, Everyone who's worked with Excel know that you always have errors in Excel, right? That's kind of normal. So, so we we just sort of send, you know, oh, we found an error here and we found an error there. Think about that, da, 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 da. and then they get super grateful. And it's not, it, it doesn't take all that long as you think, you know. And uh, so, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's appreciated. Yeah, but I would definitely say one thing that makes you guys really unique as a fund is that you really go there, like you really look at it and try and figure out, is there synergy between what you're trying to do as pink? Does it match with Paulique? Does it, you know, make sense for the business? Can you actually help the startup? You know, even looking mm. at the longer term thing, and that was going to be my next question of what the size of the fund is and what the time horizon yep. is when you're looking at making these longer term um, relationships or getting the return yeah. you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we don't need we don't need to have an exit uh, because we're not a traditional fund right so we are sort of an evergreen fund uh, in that kind of sense uh, we have our mandate at the moment is two million euros per year so it's not doesn't sound like a lot but on the other hand we're also also fairly early so our ticket sizes are usually you know between two hundred thousand euros and a million euro kind of thing uh, so yeah, and we sort of we we want to do a three to four per year, and of course when you have follow-ons, you know we might become a bit more. But we also have the possibility to go to Pauling and and ask for more money if we find really cool stuff, and if they want to sort of keep going after say the second round, uh, because obviously if you want to keep uh, your stake or improving, you know, or increasing it even, you, we might have to sort of uh, have special uh, special decisions for that. Uh, and so, yeah, that's the good thing about being an evergreen is like we always do what's best for the for the company and for the other investors. And we don't have to sort of stress an exit or anything like that. Is there an example where you can show how all these things came together in terms of uh, a project you've done or an investment you've done that illustrates when it works, how it works? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, our first investment in Café Bueno, I think, is a great example. Uh, Café Bueno is a startup in Denmark, uh, and they upcycle uh, coffee waste, both from industrial players such as ourselves, uh, and also from, you know, spent coffee grounds in, say, food service, like big hotel chains or uh, coffee chains. And uh, yeah, so obviously being a coffee producer, uh, we can do different things with with our waste and the different kinds of waste. You know, we also try to minimize the waste, but still there's always going to be some sub-grade coffee bean stuff that we can't really sell in our normal uh, process. And uh, yeah, so we we met these guys and we started cooperating uh, with the factory in Finland uh, to see if they could use our coffee waste uh, as an input uh, to do what they do. And in the first stage, what they do is they produce uh, coffee oil, which is extremely sought after in particularly the beauty and cosmetics industry. Uh, and then they also can make coffee flour uh, based on what's left. So, and that is, of course, can go to both actually beauty because you can, um, it can become like a scrub, um, but it can also actually be used if you mill it properly for, uh, for food. So you can make coffee buns or coffee cakes and stuff like that. So, um, uh, yeah, and I think that's a perfect example of, because obviously there's a strategic link there because Taking, if you if you matter if you care about sustainability and you want to be a leader in it, I mean, waste is one of the key levers in sustainability. Uh, so basically, this is helping to take care of our own waste and the sort of the coffee industry's waste. So it's a clear strategic uh, link. Um, and then societally, obviously, if you take care of waste, you help with that problem. You also actually help with climate reduction or the CO2 footprint um, with particular kind of waste. Uh, spent coffee grounds is not so good uh, as a waste uh, in sort of uh, in garbage, basically. Um, and uh, yes, and then it's actually healthy as well, mind you. It's it's a health, coffee flour has, yeah, I don't know, ten, no, thousand times the potassium amounts of bananas or something like that. Fiber in these kinds of upcycled uh, food goods is also really, uh, you know, higher than normal flour. So it's a, it's a good healthy flour as well. Um, so yes, and of course uh, it's a financially interesting case because it's 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 yeah, it's got it's just got a turning this kind of uh, input from. Uh, waste into a high value ingredient obviously can be a really attractive financial case as well so yeah so that's a great example and we started cooperating with them and we sort of actually helped them a fair bit with the with the business case and stuff like that because we thought it was really interesting and um yeah and then we just invested together with the vex fund and and, uh, an angel investor and uh, yield lab uh, which is a global fund, sort of food agritech fund. And you mentioned that this was a relatively new space for you in terms of where you come from in your background. So how did you end up in this role? And what do your other team members look like? What are their backgrounds? What do they do? Who's Who are the people behind mm-hmm. Pink? Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I got this job, I was like, you know how we always like, what the hell did they hire me for? But I think I figured it out actually after some time uh, why they did because I'm, you know, I don't want to brag or anything like that, but it's like it feels like it's a bit of a fit here somehow. I love entrepreneurs, first of all, uh, but I also really like 
assessing businesses and opportunities really fast and have that sort of analytical thing. And I also really, really like to relate to people and, and help them succeed in what they do. But I mean, I, I was a McKinsey consultant ages ago. Uh, and then I, I'm one of those people with a if you look at my CV, you either think it's the sort of the weirdest thing you've ever seen, or you think it's actually like really cool and kind of has a red thread in it. Um, but some people have to look for it. For me, the red thread is uh, is meaning. You know, I always wanted to feel that I was co doing something meaningful, and that has taken me into different things. So after McKinsey, you know, I've sort of lived in Africa working with NGOs, and I've written two novels, uh, and I've been working for an architecture company, helping them to grow from 20 to 80 people in different roles as a CEO and deputy CEO, a partner and, you know, consultant and this and that. I think what happened was when I was this, this my last position was this architecture company and I felt an increasing sort of anxiety over the state of the world. So it particularly has to do with the climate. And I, I just felt I wanted to find a way to channel these energies into something positive as opposed to feeding the negative. Uh, and when I started thinking about that, this job kind of popped up. You know, sometimes it's a bit like that in the universe. It feels like, you know, you want something and then it kind of comes to you in a way. Uh, yeah, so I was contacted about this job um, and I felt, yeah, I really felt like it was a gift from the universe or something like that because... Because because I can put the energy into sort of changing the world, but also working with entrepreneurs, which I love. I can also use my sort of analytical business mind from McKinsey times and all that stuff. Uh, and also health is extremely important. I've always been interested in health as a medicine. You know, I've sort of been looking at Ayurveda and those kind of Indian holistic um, practices for over 20 years. And so health sustainability, food, it's also a connector food, right? It's, it's culture. It's kind of part of defining who we are as a people. There's so many interesting cool things about food, so what's not to love? So I was just, yeah, very grateful for this opportunity. That was a bit of a ramble, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it's the best story. I mean, there's so many good things there from working at McKinsey to writing two books to going to Africa to ending up here and, you know, your passion, your passion oozes through for it. Um, yeah. And I have to say, too, I felt like it was a gift from the universe when I met you at a conference. And I credit you with why I started this show, because <laughs> I, I was helping you guys at some point to do venture scouting in Denmark. And in doing that, I started having all these conversations with super cool people and saying, mm. we need to let people know what's going on and how to connect and open it up. So if it hadn't been for meeting you this one time at that one place, I'm not sure if this would have happened either. I know, like and it was such thing. a cool meeting. It was yeah. a very cool meeting. I remember sort of, uh, we, we, we were, for people who are listening to this and you don't know, we actually met at a, a sort of at a bite conference in Denmark and we were having lunch and it was one of those stand lunches where you just kind of network with as many people as possible. And I was standing next, next to this Italian chef and you were asking her questions and I remember thinking, huh, those were really interesting questions. Maybe I should just move a bit closer to her. <laughs> And that's how we started. And I'm still asking questions today. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I, I do want to draw attention to the fact as well that you, um, around who else is around your team and also where you guys are based, because you, 
your Palig is a Finnish company, but you guys aren't based in Finland. So where are you mm. physically in the Nordics? And then who are the other people that are working within Pink? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, so we're based, uh, we're sitting in Stockholm uh, at the A House, which is sort of an entrepreneurial hub. Uh, Fanny is the one who has been along for, for the, around for the longest. Uh, she is a ex-banker uh, person, extremely uh, good with the, yeah, just reaching out to people and being present and uh, also being quick at analyzing opportunities and sort of thinking about what's a good match for, for Pink and Paulig. Um, so she is here and then we have uh, Louise in Denmark, uh, she's sort of the newest um, addition to the team, she's actually a food scientist, they used to work with Capnova and Spring Nordic uh, and yeah, so she's our, she's our claim to knowing what the hell we talk about sometimes when we talk to <laughs> engineer and tech people. Um, so she's extremely networked as well, uh, both in Denmark, uh, but also a little bit, uh, you know, out in Europe as well. Yeah. So I want to ask you now the questions I ask everybody and they're big questions, but they're good ones. And the first one is, what is your vision for the future of food in 10 to 15 years? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think there has to be, I mean, there's stuff happening on different levels. I kind of almost see it as like it's a local level and a sort of a bigger scale level because there's been so much going on with, you know, in terms of local food which especially with the corona times and everything and i think that's great there's more uh, local activity there's more you know all these kind of marketplaces pl connecting people so that almost like a sharing economy thing uh, like also these sort of connecting farm to fork uh, marketplaces and so that there's more activity on the local and and i think uh, the, there's a lot of technology that kind of could work in that favor. For example, you think about the vertical farming and the land-based fishing. I mean, in the sort of the, if you draw that out, you know, you can sort of have these local food in in, in the houses. Like, I mean, in sort of these kind of, uh, what do you call it? Here, the, you know, boosters that in the cities, basically, in the big uh, residential houses, you know, you could imagine having kind of in the basement, your little, you know, fishing um, sort of basin, you can imagine having the vertical farm thing either there, or you can have also stuff up on the roof, you can almost sort of see people going and snatching stuff from their locally grown things, if the technology allows that to happen, but it means it has to become much more cost efficient then, you know, and, and energy sufficient and kind of you need to have a circular flow of resources so it doesn't become actually not sustainable because sometimes this is a question mark or, uh, still with these new technologies, right? Um, but I mean, you can even imagine like even, you can almost have like a clean meat uh, pod somewhere, you know, where people grow their own uh, little burger patties, you know, you can sort of, you can draw that out. Um, at the same time, and maybe a more urgent time, we need to sort of solve the bigger industry production, you know? So there's local, but there's also this, all these, because we're never going to get, I don't think there's a scenario that says everyone's going to get their local food locally in like some kind of, that's not going to be efficient enough to feed all these people. So we need this bigger scale production, but it needs to be done sustainably. Um, and there, there's, there, there needs to be more incentives for, for farmers uh, to sort of, to do the right thing, right? 
you can sort of instead of being a emission a net emissioner of carbon dioxide for example you can be a sequestrer <laughs> of carbon dioxide right so so if you if you make those changes so that there are enough incentives for people to do the right thing that would be a big deal the same with biodiversity is a big deal it's a bit hard to measure uh, but I mean, there are people doing that or working on that. Uh, so to sort of make the big industry sustainable is a big, big deal. And that's what I, we need to make happen. Mm. So those are two sort of big ones. I mean, and then the third one, I think this is the one that a lot of people always talk about. It's kind of this on a personal level in terms of getting personalized food, right? So there's this vision where you can basically have some kind of a, you know, let's say you or even you, you can swallow a piece of apple with a nano chip in it, right? And that, that sort of sits in your body and it measures everything that has to do with your uh, blood levels and your microbiomes in different places and so forth. And it sort of sends an automatic report that gets converted into a sort of a shopping list or something where you add filters like, uh, oh, do I actually want to cook or do I want everything to be ready made? Uh, and, you know, do I want, uh, you know, preferences like organic or, or sort of vegan or, or even taste preferences or sustainability preferences? And you can sort of add those kinds of preferences. And then, you know, you get this box or whatever it is delivered to wherever you are, really, or your house into the fridge. And there you have it, you know, the food that you need. And I think that will happen in some form or the other uh, because 10 to 15 years is a pretty long time. I think there will also be the exact opposite, a bit like we see now, you know, when it's either like either people don't cook or they really cook. You know what I mean? It's like this kind of trend of sort of slow cooking and whatever. It just like it almost becomes like a hobby. And then when people do it, they really do it. And I think that will be the same. You know, perhaps some people will go for this health optimization tools. Uh, and really love to get what you need without thinking. And some people will be like, I don't want to have the bloody beetroot just because my body is telling me that what it needs. I don't feel like beetroot. I'm going to have, you know, celery, cucumber, <laughs> chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah, something else. So I think it'll be a bit of both. So when you imagine these shifts happening, what are we missing to get there? Well, you know, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like, I don't know if you saw the video that Greta Thunberg posted yesterday about uh, the progress after the Paris Agreement. Uh, it was, it, uh, so well, it's like a five years after Paris Agreement. Basically, you know, she always keeps pushing like this, a lot of words and promises and targets, but where's the action? And I think it's a bit, you know, there's a lot of people working to solve a lot of problems, you know, startups, companies, there's a lot of good stuff being done. So we shouldn't forget about that, but, but they can't do it alone. They need to be more uh, help from, from the regulators, basically in terms of incentives. And uh, I mean, I, I prefer to work with incentives in terms of legislation, but sometimes you might even have to, you know, forbid certain things, but it's usually better to work with incentives and stuff like that to work with the economy as opposed to against it. So I think there needs to be quicker and faster of those kinds of uh, supporting mechanisms. And it's also like, you know, industry organizations, 
like farmers associations or things like that. They should just be, they should be embracing change and being proactive as opposed to trying to be defensive and sort of, uh, I know it's sometimes painful for farmers and others to sort of, um, you know, it's not easy, especially when they're trying to do the right things, but the incentives aren't there. <laughs> but then they need to sort of work with and try to change that and work with the future as opposed to trying to sort of stop change. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know i don't know maybe that's maybe just the one thing but yeah i think there's a lot of people working on solving problems so we just need to help them yeah definitely yeah mm. and i i know lots of people are citing now the coronavirus saying hey if we could come together as a world and you know find a solution for this then what's the excuse for? <laughs> yeah, and that's that's exactly what what she means when she talks about the fact that is we're not treating it as a crisis, this crisis because it is a crisis, but because it's not a one event that comes like a, you know, like a spike. It's kind of a long term uh, development. Then it's hard to see it as a crisis, even though it is a crisis. Um, but but anyway, but it's also quite complex. There's so many things that needs to change. It's not just kind of one vaccine or you know, I mean, it's maybe a bit more complex. So, but yeah, I think we need to sort of step up the crisis uh, awareness and uh, do things faster. Action. When it comes to what you observe in the Nordics of our strengths and our weaknesses, when it comes to creating this future of food, what do you see? I think obviously when you, if I just look at the different countries more actually than comparing it to maybe the rest of Europe or the US. I mean, I think that uh, Denmark is amazing in the way that it works with uh, the universities and the research sort of co collaborations with startups. I think that's really inspiring. Um, there's a lot of sort of stuff happening in Denmark, I feel. In Sweden, you know, it's we're very tech oriented. There's a lot of tech stuff um, in terms of digital tools and stuff like that. But there, actually, there's a lot of other things happening as well. Um, but I think with Denmark, you know, you have this history of being sort of an ingredient strong. And I think that's a bit of an advantage for you. But there's definitely there's stuff happening here, too. But um, yeah, it's it's I don't know. I mean, it, I think in Sweden, we try to be very open to sort of a cooperation and in the Nordics, maybe I should say, uh, and sort of not trying to do everything ourselves, which is probably a strength. Um yeah, I'm not quite sure I have a good question, a good answer there. What do you think? Or what have other people said? Oh, it spans the the board in terms of, I don't think I've totally found a common consensus in the same way that there is such consensus around whatever we're missing to get to the future vision is mm. collaboration. But when it mm. comes to what our strengths are, and I bring that up because historically and like a lot of people would cite the Nordics as being very collaborative, but that is the mm. number one thing that gets raised as what we're missing and what we need to do is talk more and yeah. collaborate more. So I, I don't, that's, that's what came up to me just now is the answer, but yeah, <laughs> an answer. No, and I think, isn't that one of the things that people typically talk about, you know, how the U S are really good to cooperate between sort of academia and, uh, and corporates and startups and it's a bit more sort of cooperative somehow there. Yeah, the, it's know. just a lot about talking to each other. And I think um, I think we definitely, I mean, 
now I'm getting very much into my personal opinions. I think there is a lot of stuff around the regulation. I think when we specifically talk about food, we're just really early. Like there isn't yet that hub where if you're starting a food company, this is where you go to start it. This is the building that has the infrastructure to support you in a way that's affordable. We don't necessarily have the capital to invest in a biotech venture or a like food is like hardware. You need a lot of money up front to be able to uh, make it happen. So the amount of people willing to take that risk, even the amount of entrepreneurs who have had experience doing that and growing a global company from there and tackling these things it's relatively new. There isn't a lot of even uh, wisdom being passed down. So I think we're just in the moment of building everything. And our strength Mm. is the, like, there's such a desire and a passion and it is so there, but there's a lot of stuff that needs to be figured out practically in terms of infrastructure. So, Mm. and, and I do think we have strengths when it comes to like, you know, we have a lot of great food. We have a great understanding of, uh, I mean, restaurants come up, but I think you're right with ingredients. I think there is an angle of tech. Mm. I think, again, we have more challenges with, like you said, plant-based, cell-based when it comes to regulation. That's where, again, you have to like lobby the government in a lot of these novel foods. We've encountered novel foods before, too, just in terms of mm. what it takes to put something new in the market. It's not necessarily the most friendly for bringing out something really new. Yeah, but I, with the cell base, I actually heard that the Europeans are a bit ahead of the U.S. at the moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> it's a hard question, but you're probably right. It's fairly early, but I, I mean, there's so much happening though. I mean, there's things getting announced, I feel like every day. Totally. And that's why it's so exciting. And where, you know, with this, I really wanted to come in and say, let's make sure that people know who's doing what, because in many instances, it feels like there might be stuff happening in Finland, but the guys in Finland aren't talking to the ones in Denmark or in Sweden. So there's a lot of alignment in terms of the problems trying to be solved, but everyone's mm. doing it on their own path and has their blinders on instead of it being... Hey, talk about Finland. I just realized something that they're quite good at in Finland. I realized this sort of all this uh, single cell protein stuff. There's a fair bit happening there, especially when it comes to also uh, doing sort of doing it from cheap resources or even upcycled resources like wood and things mm-hmm. uh, or cheap starches. It's, 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 uh, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to mention the Finns as well. <laughs> Shout out. Yeah. yeah, no, it's very exciting. And it's going to be more exciting to see what's going to emerge. And if we really carve out a niche or we end up being good in a lot of different places, I, I think. Yeah. We can put some bets on. We're just we're see. just waiting for the Norwegians to get a head out of uh, their head out of the oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Into the fish, they're pretty good with the whole fish thing. But if they could, yeah, maybe they'll be really good at the alternative sort of uh, land-based fish and stuff like that. That would be really awesome. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the collaborations you guys are looking for, are there any? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're, you know, investing companies, so we uh, we want to get get hold of uh, as many as we can. So, but, um, I mean, in terms of getting in touch with people, um, sometimes it can be a good fit with our investments, uh, but sometimes it can even be a collaboration with Power League, sort of regardless of investment. You know, there can be sort of stuff that uh, we, we quite often get... Um, requests from companies where maybe it doesn't fit to be sort of an investment as such, but it could be sort of a a good link uh, for us to sort of, you know, connect them with with the right people at Pauli. Um, So that's also something to bear in mind that we we sort of, we also have that function. 
And what is the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they want to follow up on any of this? They have a, they're a startup and they want to, you know, pitch you guys. They just kind of, yeah, send us an email the fastest. Marika.king at paulig.com, for example. Uh, uh, or just look at our, you know, paulig.com slash pink and then you have our contacts there. You can email to any of us. It doesn't matter. Great. Are there any yeah. last words you want to mention before we sign off? One thing that I've learned that I think is useful for a startup to think about pretty early, it might be a little bit overwhelming because, you know, you're, all, on, you're only trying to focus on here and now, but to think about the next rounds and how, what they could look like is actually quite helpful. And because, you know, you need to find the money in a particular, say, say let's say you're in a pre-seed round, you know, you, you're talking about maybe getting 200,000 euros or something like that. And then you sort of think, oh, should I do a convertible debt? Or should I sort of have equity and how much could I get away? And then you just need to think about, okay, but when, when is the next round? And what, how much money do I actually need by then? And what is the pre, the target valuation by then? So it's like, what does the dilution look over time? And then what is the next round? We had a, this last startup we were sort of, that we are going to invest in, they have this setup page on their front, uh, in front of their business case in Excel, where they had all that. They had sort of the, basically the rounds and sort of the milestones they were going to get to in each round, the target valuation in each round, and, you know, how far they had come in different aspects. And it was just a really good way to sort of uh, understand the case. And it also helps to sort of think about these valuations and stuff that can also be a bit tricky because if you start off with having a too high demand on valuation it becomes a problem first of all because the case is not attractive enough um, for you for, for, for investors and so it takes a long time to actually get anywhere also it doesn't actually become so good in the next round because you have if you have too high valuation in the first round then it becomes a problem to attract investors in the next round so to sort of talk to someone like, you know, a couple of investors, early stage investors to sort of have a think about how could that actually look like over time and what is relevant for this kind of stage and, and, and how do we think about that? Um, I think can be very useful. Um, it definitely impressed me, <laughs> you know, when yeah. those guys had it and it made it a whole lot faster because I could see the way they thought about it and it made me, gave me a lot of confidence in their fundraising skills and that is actually fundraising skills is one of the things you have to think about as an entrepreneur as well because if you can't raise the next round you're dead and the investors don't want that so they need to believe in you as a fundraiser as well that's a bit of a a bit of a tip yeah. it sounds a bit overwhelming it's really early i know i'm sorry <laughs> i'm sorry but it's it is a but, very strong point to say that it shows that they have a long-term vision for the future and how they're going to get there. Yeah. And exactly. bring you with them, that, maybe. Yeah, and that gives confidence, you know, in terms of the, how they try to attract others. Because in the, at the end of the day, it's, it's, that's what it's all about, you know. I mean, in, in the end, it's all about the solution and the consumers or the customers and what you actually bring real change to people. But, but when you, if you want to get there, you need to get these kinds of investors on board on the journey. I think that's an awesome note to end on. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for sharing today. Yeah, it was great. Good to see you. Nice to see you too. All right, guys, that's all for today. You can find the show notes and more episodes at nordicfoodtech.io. 
And if you like what you hear, please be generous and take the time to rate the show or share it on social media. This is all about creating better food solutions, and you can't do that without your help. I'm Annalisa Winther, and let's spread the word about the food technique.